Mariupol. A coastal city in southeastern Ukraine which sits on the sea of Azov. Up until a month ago, this was a bustling industrial port city, home to around 430,000 people and filled with busy cafes and restaurants. Four weeks on, Mariupol is lying in smoke and ashes. Those left in the city have no fresh food, no water, no medicine and no electricity. All contact with the outside world has been cut off. Mariupol has been completely destroyed by this war. On March 9th, the Russians bombed that maternity hospital uh, and killed you know, pregnant women, unborn children. Um, they subsequently bombed a theater where there were up to a thousand people sheltering. And then they also bombed an art school where there were several hundred people sheltering. Lara Marlowe is the Irish Times Paris correspondent, but she's been reporting from Ukraine for nearly a month. We do know that there are are bodies rotting by the roadside and there have been many people buried in mass graves. The last figure I saw for the number of dead in Mariupol was 2,500. But it, it could be years before we know everything that's happened there. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how Mariupol became the front line of Russia's war against Ukraine. Lara, in the first few days and weeks after the Russian invasion in February, the world's eyes and focus was mainly on the capital, Kyiv, and Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv. But Putin always had Mariupol in his sights from the very beginning. So what do we know about what has happened in that city since the war began a month ago? Most of what we know we owe to two uh, very brave journalists from the Associated Press. Mr. Slav Chernov and Evgeny Maloletka. And Mr. Slav lived in, I believe, in Kharkiv, further to the north. And he had the good sense, the foresight to move to Mariupol. He knew, because he's uh, Ukrainian, he knew immediately that Putin would try to take Mariupol, that that would be a priority for him. He and Evgeny moved there They arrived there the night before the war started. In the beginning, I think the world's attention was just so overwhelmed by the the enormity of what was happening that no one paid special attention to Mariupol. And then as time went by, it, it became apparent also through the reporting of these two AP journalists that Mariupol was by far the hardest hit of any place in Ukraine. The name Mariupol will go down in infamy, I think, alongside Guernica, Leningrad, Aleppo, places that have been besieged. And it was under bombardment day and night and day and night. And uh, as Mr. Slav says, um, it was one bomb at a time. They, first, they went for the power, the electricity, um, the lights, the heating, then the provisions uh, arriving by convoys. They stopped anyone going into the city. And then finally, they, they cut the telephone system and the television towers, and, and they, they cut off all communications with the outside world. 
President Zelensky has described it as Armageddon or Verdun. He compared it to in, a, in an address to the French National Assembly. And now in Mariupol, there's nothing but ruins. After three weeks of blockade and bombardment, which hasn't stopped. I think it was Human Rights Watch referred to Mariupol as freezing hell because it's very, very cold. People have been chopping down trees to make little fires to warm themselves or to, to try to cook food. They're, they're just living in terrible, terrible conditions. And along with the, the worsening situation in Mariupol, we have received less and less and less information. The bombs over Mariupol drop both day and night. This is as close as we can get to the hell unfolding there. But on the ground. And one of the reasons for this lack of information is because the two Associated Press journalists you've mentioned, they finally left the city last week. How are we keeping on top of the situation there now without international press? Are, are there any Ukrainian journalists still reporting from the city? There are zero journalists left there. Um, and there's less and less information. I mean, I was scouring the internet and radio and television and, and, and my uh, interpreter is also watching for news for me. The little that we do know comes from cell phone videos from people who are still inside. From the mayor's office. And the refugees themselves, because uh, I think day before yesterday, it was, that was the last figure I saw. There were about 7,000 people got out. Um, some days it's been sort of 10,000. I think the, the, the maximum I've seen was 30,000 getting out in one day. So the people who are coming out are telling real horror stories of, of hunger, thirst, deprivation, looting, and, you know, people stealing petrol from other people's cars. And it, it's just a horrific, terrible, terrible situation. It's a miracle that they made it. But if you're desperate, you just drive, even if your car's been hit by shrapnel. Anything to get away from the relentless bombardment, the cold, the scooping up of snow. What about these humanitarian corridors? out of Mariupol. As you've mentioned, thousands are getting out, but some people are just taking to foot and trying to leave that way, despite the bombardments falling above them because they're just desperate. Is there any safe way of escaping that city anymore? There's nothing is safe anywhere in Ukraine these days, um, but escaping from Mariupol is particularly dangerous. I heard the testimony of a, of a woman who survived the theater bombing. She was going out to search for water for her pet dogs when the theater was bombed. This is when the shell landed. I saw that it landed just where I'd been sitting. I was outside and survived only because there was some man nearby. And she just started walking, and she walked all the way to Berdyansk, which is um, also on the coast of the Sea of Azov, and she was going through checkpoints and that sort of thing, but un under bombardment much of the time. So yes, people are walking out, people are packing into cars, sitting on each other's laps, and, and they're, they're quite desperate, understandably, to get out of Mariupol. We've heard that Moscow has started deporting thousands of Mariupol residents, along with people from Donetsk and Luhansk region, to Russia. Do we know why they're doing that? No. I mean, I, I think it's probably malicious. The, the, the Russians and before them, the Soviets, have a long history 
of deportations, of, of forcibly moving people from one place to another. They did it in Finland. They did it in Ukraine um, through, throughout periodically during the 20th century. They did it in Crimea. They moved the Tatars out and moved Russians in to replace them after they annexed Crimea. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they are forcibly moving people. It is a war crime, by the way. The Ukrainians say that they're taking away the Ukrainian passports and identity papers from the people who they're moving and that they're giving them a piece of paper that's a sort of temporary residence identity card and the name of a city in Russia. I don't know if it's, you know, Kursk or Rostov or, you know, wherever they're sending them in Russia, but they're forcing them to go to an assigned place in Russia. Now, that's the Ukrainian version of it. I personally, and I, I haven't heard this anywhere, but I don't totally exclude the idea that some of these people are separatist pro-Russians um, who want to go to Russia for safety to get, to flee the bombardments. I think I think that's completely possible. But for the Russians to say these people are refugees coming to Russia, they're fleeing persecution by the Ukrainian government. That's a, a propaganda coup and, and disinformation. That's their version of it anyway. Russia offered Ukraine a bully's ultimatum. Give in now or be destroyed. Lara, Ukraine has refused Russia's ultimatum to surrender Mariupol to Russian troops. But what could this mean for the lives of people on the ground in that city? I mean, ultimately, won't it just cost more lives? Definitely. It definitely costs more lives. But the vast majority of people I talk to say, we don't want a ceasefire, we don't even want a peace agreement, we want victory. And their rationale is that they had ceasefires in Donbass. They've been at war for eight years. They had ceasefires and every ceasefire was broken. They had the Minsk Accords and those peace accords were never enforced, never carried out. And the feeling, the very strong feeling among Ukrainians is that if they do not actually defeat the Russians, that they will have to fight them off and on and go through this this terrible uh, suffering and, and death and destruction over and over and over again until Russia is defeated. So the attitude is we cannot surrender, we will not, and we must keep fighting until we win. Coming up, why is Putin so determined to take control of Mariupol? Christian Kaunert is a professor of international security at Dublin City University. Christian, after three weeks of bombardments in the city of Mariupol, it seems clear that Putin is willing to do whatever is necessary to take control of this port city. But can you explain why Mariupol is so key to Moscow's military campaign in Ukraine? Mariupol is strategically very, very important for Russia. Because if you look just purely on the map, you will see that on the one hand, you have Crimea there in the kind of south of it. And then on the other hand, you have the so-called republics of Donetsk and Luhansk that are sort of a little bit further removed, but they actually do not have any kind of connection between them territorially. Now, Mariupol is the one city that connects everything. If they hold on to Mariupol. They have a land connection between Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea, and they can actually start integrating all of that into the Russian Federation, which is presumably what their plan is. 
and they have one economic and political unit that they can then create and integrate into the Russian Federation. Without Mariupol, there's always going to be an issue there and they won't be able to presumably hold on to those territories because the, those kind of stretches of land, they can't really function without the kind of major regional capital that Mariupol is at that particular point. So let's say Russia does take full control of Mariupol in the coming days. What would that mean militarily? I mean, why would it be militarily such a win for Russia? And why would it be such a blow to Ukraine? Militarily, certainly, it would achieve one objective that Russia has had, and that is linking Donetsk, Luhansk with Crimea. That also then links it territorially to the Russian Federation. So that then means even if President Putin doesn't achieve any further military objectives in, in Ukraine, he will have the cover to decide, now I'm going to stop the war in Ukraine. And that is potentially what might happen if Mariupol falls, that he might then decide, so now I'm going to go into peace negotiations. I'm unlikely to uh, be able to, to actually get Kiev. I'm unlikely to be able to certainly get the western part of Ukraine. So at this point, I'm going to cut my losses. Uh, Russia and President Putin can sell this as a strategic victory in that sense. So for Ukraine, it is overall a strategic defeat in the sense that once Mariupol is gone, they will have lost, in a sense, control of the Azov Sea. They will no longer have any control over that part of Ukraine. This will be very detrimental, obviously, for the economy and, and everything else. And it makes Odessa and the last part of uh, the Black Sea that Ukraine still uh, has full control over much, much more vulnerable. So as a result of that, a Ukrainian MP has recently accused Russia of trying to starve Mariupol into surrender. Why do you think, Christian, Russia is taking such a brutal approach with this city? And how could it actually work if by the time they do take over, if that happens, so many people have either fled or have been killed in the bombardments? Yes, I mean, one of the reasons is very simple. They're not advancing militarily very well. As a result of that, they need to have some successes. Now, the second reason is that from a military perspective, the battle that you would have to have in an urban environment like Mariupol is extraordinarily dangerous for the Russians. The likelihood of having huge losses, of incurring huge losses of, of life is extremely high. And the Russians historically also do not have a very good record of urban war fighting. I mean, they have a terrible record on that. So the likelihood of Russia doing very well in terms of normal warfare in Mariupol are extremely slim to none. Potentially, I think there's a chance that they could even be using chemical or biological weapons there because that would end the battle decisively, a battle that they're unlikely to win if they're just using conventional warfare. And as a result of that, they're doing it as brutally as they can in order to get the population to submit, to resign, to surrender, because they are very aware that if they are fighting a man-to-man -man combat in an urban environment, they're likely to lose. So do you think that biological weapons in Mariupol could very soon be the next step? Yes, I absolutely believe that the Russians are planning if they need to. I'm not saying they've decided that they definitely will use bi biological and chemical weapons, but 
they are certainly considering it. American intelligence is telling us that they're considering it. I think it's very likely if we look at the propaganda efforts that they've been making in terms of accusing uh, the Ukrainians of doing bio labs with the help of the Americans, everything else, all of that is a precursor to actually do it themselves. And they've done it before. They've done it in Syria. The West was totally quiet when they've used it in Syria. The West didn't stop them from using it. They've tried that military strategy outside of the European framework. They've done it in Syria, so they're very likely to be able to do it again. What is the symbolism for Putin if Russian forces do take control of Mariupol? Why is that so important for him, do you think? I mean, for him, it's a first step of going into the history books. It's like he is realizing this vision of the Nova Russia. He's realizing, you know, this mystical visions that the Russians are now um, propagating, also with the help of the Russian Orthodox Church, with a lot of the kind of state um, apparatus that is all pushing this particular vision. And that leads Russia back to its imperial past. And that's why it's so important. Russia without Ukraine cannot be the old empire that it used to be. And if we look at the history of Russia, Russia is a state that has developed. In fact, it became a state by developing its own empire. It developed the empire. It then later became part of the Russian empire, then became part of the Soviet Union. But without the Ukraine, the Russian empire is naked. For the first time in Russian history, Russia is a state, a nation state, not an empire. And that is something that the Russian state has never been. And that is putting a lot of fear in a lot of elites. And as a result of that, they do not want this to happen. And Putin wants to obviously be the man to restore that particular glory and bring Russia back to, to being that kind of imperial country that it has always been in its own history and in its own way of thinking about itself. If... Russia does capture Mariupol in the coming days and take control. What kind of message does that send to Western powers and to the US? The message is clear. Russia um, aims to expand. Russia aims to become an empire again. It is competing with Europe for the post-Soviet countries, perhaps even for the Eastern European countries. It is ready to go to war over that. And it is asking Europe, are you ready to fight as well? And the answer that we've heard initially was, no, we're not. And that was before the war in Ukraine. And I think that answer has now changed. I think the answer within NATO and the answer within the European Union is now we are ready to defend ourselves. If you come anywhere near us, we will defend ourselves. And I think that is already an answer to what, the West presumably has already factored in, and that is that uh, Putin is going to take a chunk out of Ukraine. There is no doubt about that. Good morning. Uh, Secretary General will deliver some remarks to you on the ongoing war. Thank you very much for your presence. Lara, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said this week that this war is, quote, unwinnable for Russia. Why do you think he said that? I think that's the lesson of history. I mean, if you look at the, the, the Soviet Union stayed more than nine years in Afghanistan 
and they left defeated. They have already lost, uh, according to NATO, something like 10,000 troops. Uh, and that's, they've lost more men in a month than they lost in a decade in Afghanistan. So I think that gives you a pretty good idea why it's unwinnable. I mean, look at the US in Iraq and Afghanistan. They also lost. I think that you, you cannot subjugate a country of 41 million people, a country the size of almost the size of Texas and permanently occupy it and, you, you know, just force those people to, to do your bidding, to your will. Uh, so I think that's why it's, it's unwinnable. It's also unwinnable because for once the West is united against Russia. I think there's so, such strong feeling internationally against Russia that they, they cannot continue and occupy all of Ukraine and, and, and win, at least not in the long run, but it could go on for a long time. Larry, you've spent nearly a month in Ukraine now. What are your feelings about the conflict? Do you think a ceasefire can still be negotiated? Or do you fear the violence is actually only going to intensify further? I mean, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, Sirka. I think the outcome that I fear, I mean, I, I fear pretty much all outcomes at the moment because I, I don't see any happy ending to this. I think there will eventually be a, a ceasefire once the Russians get so totally bogged down that they, they, they're going to have to compromise on their demands and, and the Ukrainians also are suffering so much that they're going to have to accept something short of total victory over Russia. Um, but what I, I fear will happen is a ceasefire that will be like the ceasefires in Donbass over the last eight years. That is to say, a messy ceasefire where there are violations, where every once in a while somebody starts shelling or bombing and more people die, and it will drag on and on and on. If you look at, at the history of the world, it's, it, it's very rare that a war comes to a clean, neat rapid end. That's what we would all like, of course, but unless there's regime change in Moscow, for example, I, I don't see that happening, at least not in the near future. Lara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Lara Marlowe and Christian Kaunert, and you can follow all of the latest developments on the war in Ukraine at irishtimes.com. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan. In the News will be back on Monday.